Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The search for corporate and accounting fraud has become its own form of academic study with researchers in universities trying to determine the common threads that would offer the easiest path for discovering deceit. It has also fueled the sometimes highly profitable investment practice of shorting stocks. One of the most established and well-known tools for measuring possible accounting fraud is the Benish M-Score, a model that users say offers the best probabilistic tool for determining financial manipulation. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with the model's namesake, Dr. Daniel Benish of Indiana University, about the accuracy of the limitations of the M-Score and what it's saying about earnings manipulation heading into the next 12 months. Trivik, thanks. Thanks for joining today. I really appreciate it. Um, you uh, know, obviously, uh, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Happy, happy to be here. So Great. You know, there is a lot of discussion about what's happening in the economy and what's, you know, how organizations are reacting. And, you know, that always gets into the issue of, of um, you know, how they react in terms of discussing their earnings and the accuracy of that and fraud. But I, I wanted to, you know, just take a, a, a step back and maybe if we could, or if you could sort of discuss what was the impetus for developing the M-score? And, and um, you know, it's been a while since it was introduced. How, how has it developed and changed over that period? So, okay, so the, the first question is, I, I discovered that teaching um, MBA students accounting was not a cup of tea <laughs> and that they reacted really well to things that appeared in the news media. Mm -hmm. And so I started by, I found some fraud cases that were uh, commented on in the media and I used that as an introduction to some issue of accounting that I wanted to teach. Mm. And so when I realized that that worked, I went looking for more articles of the sort. They were kind of hard to find. And then um, I, I learned about the SEC's enforcement program. Mm. And so uh, from there, I took examples that also fit into my class. It doesn't mean that I only taught about fraud here, okay? Mm. It, it just means that um, I became aware uh, of a small number of firms that either admitted to committing fraud or or uh, were, were charged with mm -hmm. some sort of accounting fraud. Um, those were my samples, so I profiled them. And then I compared them to other firms in their respective industries. And I guess if I have any contribution in this, is that I read the literature and I read what analysts did. Mm -hmm. And I built these various uh, uh, explanators, mm -hmm. if, if you want the variables that make the model. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been around for a while. Uh, it works quite well. And mm -hmm. I can talk about how it changed before we get into the details, if you'd like. Um, I have, of course, reestimated the model. 
I, I have added things to the model, sometimes under a consulting agreement mm-hmm. and sometimes for my own purposes. But there's one thing that's pretty good about the model is the published model 25 years after, 26 years after publication still works quite well. Mm-hmm. Really. Well, um, so, anyway, yeah. Can I ask, uh, so maybe you could define or help me understand when you when you say it works how how do you uh, define working sure sure so the model discovers uh firms that have fraud mm-hmm. uh it will pick up uh, 40 out of 100 cases mm-hmm. okay these aren't just cases of fraud these are cases of firms that were caught doing something fraudulent or publicly came out and said, hey, we committed fraud. Hmm. Um, The latter usually happens because some board members turned over and the new board members require some sort of internal investigation Hmm. because they have to protect their own uh, wealth. Um, uh, These firms aren't just frauds. They are extreme cases, if Hmm. you like. So how do I define something that works? Well, uh, something that works is something that discovers the actual cases of frauds ahead of time. Mm. Uh, Obviously, 40% is not a great percentage, right? Mm. Uh, But it doesn't make too many what we call false positive errors. Um, And that's the key to my model. even the published model, which now dates to well, 26 years ago, uh, doesn't make uh, as many errors as several other models that have been published since. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have the high success rate that some of the new models have. Uh, but to, to, to give you an example, um, if you looked over the past, say, 25, 26 years, um, more, if you like, there would be probably about 300 cases of fraud, unique cases, mm. excluding banks and insurance companies, which the model is just doesn't work well. Okay? Okay. It's never been estimated that way. Mm. Um, so on the other hand, during that same time period, you could probably marshal 150,000 non-fraud firms mm-hmm. uh, in different years, clearly, mm-hmm. okay, not only the same year. So if you, if, if you have a success rate of 70%, which my model does not have, mm-hmm. then that means you capture 210 frauds mm-hmm. ahead of time or contemporaneously. Mm-hmm. But you have a 40% false positive rate. Right. That means that your 210 firms are flagged along 60,000 other, other firms, and a priori you don't know which is which. Hmm. So the precision of those models is terrible because it flags firms, and yes, it flags more fraud firms, but those are drowned by a sea of false positives. Right. 
So th that's what I mean by works. Okay. Uh, uh, monologue isn't great, but it doesn't make too many errors. Hmm. Um, I'll tell you a bit of history. I worked with Anderson on this. Mm -hmm. They were my main clients. Uh, uh, we flagged Enron beforehand. Hmm. Uh, but the, 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 the Anderson office were autonomous. So what came out of the Chicago office didn't, it wasn't always listened to in particular, right. given the mess Houston had put itself in. So anyway, uh, all this to tell you is that this has kind of worked. And for the past, what, since 1997, it's been out of sample. Right. That means models published, you know, I can't say I did better on something or other because everyone can check, right? Right, right. Maybe. I don't know if that helps you. No, it does. Um, I answer the question. It does. But, but given that, like you, you mentioned, it's been around for 26 or, you know, 25, 26 years, um, and if anything, if I know a little bit about how fraud works, it constantly changes and especially oh. financial fraud. How do you, how do you keep that up to date? How do you, how, how, how has the model developed over the past 25 uh, years? So if you were to estimate the model with most recent data, hmm. uh, the cost would be that you don't have the ability to predict that a sample. Hmm. Okay. Is as soon as you do something with data, uh, skeptics among the academics will say, yeah, but you peaked, right. you know, it, it, there's a, uh, so I can tell you, um, that some of the variables are lost their power and, and if you like, I can explain how now or, or later, if you want me to describe what the variables are, um, one of them is the day sales in receivables index, mm. which essentially is a financial statement measure designed to capture whether a firm is booking revenues early right. or even if it's booking fake revenues, fictitious revenues. Okay. So that variable relies on receivables accumulating, um, uh, unusually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there is a way to, uh, to prevent analysts or the model from capturing that. And it's called factoring. It's the right. idea that you would sell some of your valid receivables, uh, so as to reduce the amount of money that is uh, reported in receivables and everything would look fine. So, uh, how do we do that? Well, we have a search software, right? That looks through footnotes and compares whether the amount the firm factored in one period differs from that of another period. Uh, so we make the assumption here that whatever there was, was normal. And we try to see if there is more factoring this year, that sort of thing. Uh, that makes sense. I, I, I wanted to ask, you know, getting back and you, you mentioned the one, you know, factoring and how you applied factoring to the one ratio. You know, the, there are several underlying ratios to the model. 
you, you know, without having to go into specific on each one, I mean, what do you think sure. are the 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 um the 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 most fundamental, the the ones that are driving it that you feel are most important in terms sure. of the underlying ratios? So, the gross margin index is uh, the ratio of the prior year gross margin to the current year. Mm-hmm. And so all these variables were built with the idea that the value of one is neutral. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, it's a, the gross margin in the um, values in both years in percentage was the same, and, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, gross margin is a really important ratio because it's got a big impact on profits. Mm-hmm. Um, so. When you look at the gross margin ratio, the way I computed it, a value greater than one means gross margins are deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Deteriorating gross margins are never good for the bottom line. So my thought there was that this would provide incentives to, to, uh, to manipulate earnings. In other words, the firms are facing some strong headwinds. Mm And they have to do something to make themselves look a little better. Uh, so that variable has a lot of power. Right. Uh, as I mentioned, the day sales in receivable has a, a very high loading in, in, the, in the model. Um, but right now it's lost some of its uh, uh, power. In other words, if you were to estimate the model, that loading would be lower. Mm-hmm. Um the the other variable that always plays a role is the sales growth index, which is basically sales last year to sales this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, high growth firms will do anything they can to maintain the perception that, of high growth. Because mm-hmm. as soon as there is a bit of a decline, the price is going to take a dive. Right. Uh, so uh, this is an adjustment to expectations that is inevitable. And if it can be delayed, then, well, let's do it, that, that sort of thing. So uh, sales growth, uh, on the other side, uh, if a firm is growing, they don't really care about control issues. Right? right. They're more interested in production, meeting demand, have first mover advantage, that sort of stuff. So, so that variable has um, provides the incentive to to do something, and, and also uh, potentially the ability because it relates to younger firms. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the two variables I've described as important relate to revenues, and it's true that uh, for every dollar of revenue that you inflate. Um, you have the biggest impact on earnings. Right. So over 50% of, um, of manipulations exist on the top line. Um, uh, gross margin also helps. When you get into the little details, then the effect is not as high. Uh, for example, uh, I have a variable that measures um, the extent to which a firm capitalizes costs that should be expensive. Right. Okay, well, the loading isn't that hot in there. The variable that looks at whether uh, 
useful lives for depreciation are getting stretched. Okay, and and yeah, that loading is 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 correct, but um, it, it's uh, the 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 factor loading coefficient isn't uh, all that high by comparison. So the one on sales growth is like eight times bigger. Hmm. Okay, um, the last variable that has some effect, but it's not measured as a ratio. Of, uh, as a neutral value of one. It's just the ratio of accruals to total assets. So the difference between income before exceptional items, uh, mm. not call them extraordinary since it doesn't exist apparently any longer, uh, minus cash flow from operations. Uh, and, and that variable has has a role uh, uh, also in 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 what I end up finding um, for, um, for the M score. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member or look for the link in this episode's show notes. So given all those variables, I mean, if I understand it correctly, there's so many variables. I mean, there's particular variables that go into the model. Those yep. variables are based in a lot, large part on, you know, how companies report, you know, revenues or, or you know, particularly revenues. But there's been, if I understand it correctly, a fair amount of change going on both at the policy level, the accounting level, legislation that um, changes the way uh, that those, you know, those underlying ratios can be affected. So how do you keep up with that? How do you, how does the model adapt to those? So I was an early student of stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Which is uh, a a, a law to protect against lemons. Mm -hmm. That's how I, I thought about <laughs> it. Uh, and, and my model is about finding those lemons, right? So yeah. uh, so I said, well, how does this affect? And I started studying internal control weaknesses mm-hmm. uh, and material weaknesses that were reported either voluntarily or on a mandated basis. Uh, nothing. Nothing in those is going to affect these fundamental values mm-hmm. in financial statements. Uh, many of the material weaknesses relate to complicated stuff like uh, the construction of the provision for income tax right. or uh, the search for uh, the excess amount over overfunding or underfunding on the pension plan. Mm. Uh, all these things have become now part of, but they didn't exist back then to any effect. Right. Um, so 
in in the older days before uh, the, uh, the accounting world weren't a bit uh, not so on deferred taxes. <laughs> deferred taxes were a fantastic proxy for the difference between the cash basis of accounting, a profit for which is CFO, and the accounting basis for accounting, profit for which is net income. Mm. In other words, the amount of deferred taxes essentially told you what accruals were going to be. Right. Okay. That's no longer the case now. It, mostly it is. But you have to fish in so many ponds that it's not necessary. So when I included the accruals variable in my model, I didn't need to infer anything about the deferred tax provision anymore. So they're not there. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, I don't know if you looked at one of the, the, the papers, but inventory is nowhere here. Right. And the reason it's not, it's because... You could not have day sales in receivables and day sales in inventory in the same regression. They were collinear. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I do analysis like this, because someone asks me or helping someone, or there's a bunch of other things I bring to bear, uh, including reading footnote information. But fundamentally, this is a simple expression of I think what analysts, serious analysts, that is, did when they examined a set of financial statements. Right. I don't know if that answers your question. It does, and it brings up another question I have in my mind, which is, you know, there's no shortage, you know, recently, especially recently, of activist uh, investors um, like the Hindenburgs of the world um, who say they go after these sort of accounting measures and and try and um you know basically short the stock in, in a lot of ways how does your approach differ from that is is it fundamentally different from what a lot of the activist hedge funds are looking uh, for no it's not and uh in past years uh i have i was contracted by goldman sachs on behalf of a hedge fund mm -hmm. Um, to identify shorts for them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and I did. And so the model is pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, many of them having headwind yeah. against them. In other words, if you don't invest in the firms that my model, the same score that's published, flags, uh, then you're not doing poorly. You're not missing out on a big price uh, yeah. uh, increase. Um, so uh, that's so. This is what they're interested in. Look, I had one conversation with the CEO of a hedge fund. It's date back 2005, six. It's the last time I've done something for them, hmm. uh, and he told me that. He didn't like working capital <laughs> to increase mm -hmm. as a percentage of total assets from year to year. Well, guess what? Some of these variables capture inflation in working capital, right. essentially. So, so I guess they hired me because they understood that I would provide essentially more yeah. detail on on where. Yeah. 
So yeah, no, it's about it's the same. Um, mm. uh, it's the same sort of stuff. Um, no, that makes sense. I, I wanted to ask you. You know, there was a story in the journal uh, about the M score recently, yes. and the correlation between the M score and possible recessionary trends. Maybe you could just detail a little bit what what you discovered and what the correlation yeah. is. So, uh, I was approached by three of my co-authors um, on on that paper. Um, I was approached because they had read uh, a model that had been published that made predictions about fraud and business cycle. Hmm. Uh, and the model wasn't clear to them. It wasn't always clear to me either. Hmm. Um, so I told them that. But they didn't know enough about the fraud world. Mm-hmm. So my model and, and kind of other model. So, uh, so we got together, worked, and went through a grueling process to get this published. And what we argued, and here's the essence of the argument, is that if we could measure the amount of financial misinformation in the economy, uh, we could make, uh, we could argue that if there is misinformation, those who are misinforming would not make an incorrect decision. Right. But those who are observing the misinformed uh, financials, without knowing they're looking at misinformed financials, they might make an error. Um, and so the idea is this, if you are facing a headwind because the industry is that way at the moment, but you put some makeup on your numbers, typically you also continue investing beyond what you should mm-hmm. to provide the appearance that things are well. I, on the other hand, I'm your competitor and I'm facing the same headwinds. But I'm looking at you and I said, well, his numbers are not bad and still investing. So this has got to be temporary. And I continue investing. And what I end up with is an overinvestment that I will have to correct once your fraud is revealed. And I realize that a recession is coming, but I only realize that with a delay. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took the M score by firm, aggregated it um, for the economy, and we call that the likelihood of misreporting or the likelihood of misinformation Mm -hmm. financially uh, in the economy. What we found is that uh, uh, there is if that level, uh, if the aggregate level of misreporting increases, uh, then that often leads or predicts a recession. Incrementally to a number of models that exist from right. professional forecasters and so on. So, uh, you know, uh, we've been discussing things with fidelity, with Goldman Sachs asked us questions about how to compute all this. Hmm. Um, and they're interested in, uh, 
in November last year, December last year, we were not predicting a recession for 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, in February, we pulled the later numbers, latest numbers we had. And we are now predicting a likely recession for quarters two to this year to quarter four and quarter one hmm. of next year. Uh, it doesn't mean a recession is going to happen. Right, okay? right. But that's what our prediction is. Let, let me ask you this, and, and hopefully I can phrase this the right way. So okay. um, it's, it, you know, the, the M score, you know, theoretically measures misinformation coming out of public companies. And if I understand correctly, you know, the markets always go for, you know, efficient markets are the efficient transmission of information into investors' hands. Um, how much of that, I mean, are you ascribing intent into this, into your, into your model? Is, is, the, is the model saying that the intent of those who are putting out this information is to misrepresent it, or is it a, a result of, and I'm sorry if this is, hopefully this makes sense to you, um, stress in the market or think uh, rapid changes in the market no. that are, are go being borne out in the numbers. Does that make sense? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Essentially what you're asking is, how much of what we observe is due to the business cycle right, uh, or deteriorating conditions? Um, uh, okay, so my answer is going to come out from a different hmm. angle. Uh, if you were to relate the earnings of a firm uh, to the economy, to changes in earnings to changes in GNP, uh, you would not find much explanatory power. Right. Um, if you were, so something of the order of one or 2%, if you were to relate earnings changes to industry earnings changes, you would gain a little more explanatory power, something of the order of eight to 10%. Hmm. Uh, in aggregate, if you added both, you probably stay in the range of 10, 12%. What I'm trying to tell you is that most of the earnings are specific, the changes are specific to the firm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the economy itself or the industry doesn't have that much influence. Mm -hmm. uh, that's borne out by uh, research that's been done that I have not done. Mm -hmm. But that that is existing. One of the reasons why the M score is developed, it compares this year's data to last year's data, right. or the firm to itself. We could very well have taken compare this year's data to some sort of industry average. Right. But I didn't do that. And I didn't do that precisely because as earnings changes aren't explained by the industry much. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh -huh. Well, I, I want to take too much of your time, so I want to sort of ask you sure. one final question. It's more of an existential question, I guess. But um, if I understand it correctly, there has been, you know, a long-term decline in the number of 
publicly listed firms, you know, yeah. companies, and that the rise of private capital and private markets is taking a bigger sure. role. Sure. What does that sure. mean for how you follow this, calculate this into the model? What does it impact does it have on detecting and measuring these types of, of misinformation okay. frauds? Yeah, all right. So I have personally, and I have on behalf of others applied my model to private firms. Mm. Okay. Uh, in other words, the model works with private firms the same way it works with public firms, because all this information is in a, a financial statement. Mm. Okay. Now, uh, just two answers I want to give you. There's a say, okay, but uh, one is that if I don't have the financial information, I can't catch anything. Right. Okay. Uh, so if you are a venture capitalist and ask me to check on something, I can. Okay. Um, if so this is a conjecture, which I have not tested uh, for lack of data and time. Uh, the conjecture would be that firms that go private, they may look like they have maybe some trouble and before they go private. Right. Now, this is purely a conjecture, okay? We have not tested. You realize that once they go private, and we have no access to any data. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a colleague and I discussed the possibility of checking the pattern of uh, M scores and other financial data before firms go private. Mm -hmm. Like, is there an underlying reason we're not seeing like that? Mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't know. Hopefully, that gives you uh, at least a partial. It does. It does, it does yeah. make sense, though. I mean, it does make logical sense, especially with the number of firms going private that are in some sort of stress, or um, you know, are looking for a rescue from a private firm. But uh, that makes total sense. Well, I really appreciate it. I, I want to thank you for taking the time for for having this discussion. It's been really informative. My pleasure.